Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. We are just days away from the presidential election here in the United States. That contest, pitting incumbent President Donald Trump against former Vice President Joe Biden, may be the most consequential election in decades. It will undoubtedly have far-reaching consequences for American policy on a wide range of important issues, including this podcast's focus, Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. To better understand the different ways in which a Biden victory or a second Trump term could impact the situation on the ground in Israel and Palestine, the U.S. foreign policy approach toward Israel and the Palestinians, and the discussion in the American Jewish community around these issues, my colleagues and I spoke with some of Israel Policy Forum's leading experts, Shira Efron, Michael Koplow, and David Halperin, to provide you with three different angles on these issues. The view from Israel, the view from Washington, and the outlook for the U.S. Jewish community. One quick reminder to our listeners before we dive into these discussions. Israel Policy Forum, this podcast's sponsor, is a nonpartisan organization. We do not endorse candidates for public office in the United States or in Israel. The purpose of this episode is purely educational. With that, let's get into it. For the first part of our program, I spoke to Shira Efron, Israel Policy Forum's policy advisor based outside Tel Aviv, about how the Trump administration's Israel policy has been playing out in real time for Israelis and Palestinians, what we can expect in a possible second Trump term, and what a prospective Biden administration might change or keep the same. Hi, Shira. Thanks for joining us for this program. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. So we can get right into it in terms of how this election and the different possible outcomes could impact things on the ground in Israel and Palestine. Recent months have seen a succession of normalization agreements backed by the Trump administration between Israel and different Arab states. This has kind of been the headline foreign policy news out of the administration and probably its flagship achievement on the uh, Israel file. How do you see this process proceeding under a second Trump term? And what happens to this normalization issue should Joe Biden assume the presidency in January? So I think it's safe to assume that if um, Trump continues to a second term, we will continue to see uh, a flurry of normalization deals uh, because the policy uh, presumably by the administration would remain the same. This is a flagship foreign policy achievement, possibly the only one. And so there's there's an incentive to continue it. And the Arab states in the region uh, will be just following their predecessors and uh, would likely try to uh, gain also some of the benefits that come with those deals. Um, so I, I, I think we will see more of that. And the President Trump himself said that there are 10 more deals uh, awaiting to be signed after the normalization. Um, if, on the other hand, Joe Biden is elected president, I think we're going to see a halt to the normalization, perhaps a temporary one. Promoting Israeli Arab normalization has been a bipartisan goal in the United States for uh, decades now. 
So it's not necessarily that Biden himself and his administration will slow down on his processes. But first of all, there's another side to this. I think the countries in the region themselves will say, well, 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 now we're, there's a new administration in office. They're going to have different considerations vis-a-vis -vis the region, uh, different considerations vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And we should also hold back and see possibly what the new policies are and then reassess. It is also important to say that we were talking about the benefits of these administrations. I think that the Biden administration would uh, resort to normal processes. Uh, for instance, the discussion about the F-35s and the compensation, what it means to maintain Israel's qualitative quality military edge, known as uh, QME. And therefore, what you would call, uh, quote unquote, the payment for normalization with Israel will be could could be very different under a Biden administration. So this is also part of the consideration. Right. And we, we saw today even Tony Blinken, uh, Biden's uh, lead foreign policy advisor, expressing some kind of concern about this F-35 sale to the UAE. I was going to ask, you, you started to uh, allude to it. How are these different Arab countries gauging the state of the American presidential race and deciding whether to normalize or not to normalize with Israel? Uh, sure, I'll get to this in a moment, but I think what you said about uh, Anthony Blinken is really interesting. You know, it's just anecdotal, but during the Obama years, not only President Obama refused to sell the UAE F-35s, according to Dan Shapiro, his former ambassador to Israel, he even refused to give them a classified briefing on the on the aircraft. So, um, assuming Biden will be surrounded by uh, people who worked in the Obama administration, this is how uh, they frame their thinking. I I, I think it's not uh, far fetched to assume that we're going to see a much more careful process in terms of uh, foreign uh, arms sales in the region uh, for normalization, or regardless of normalization. And this has implications for U.S. competition with China and Russia and other issues that are bigger than Israel's qualitative military edge, even though this is an important issue. You know, the Arab states, I I, I haven't seen polling, uh, but it's very clear that uh, uh, Trump has designed many of its foreign policies uh, based on what he sees as his personal ties with uh, leaders, right, in the region. Uh, he's very fond of General Sisi in Egypt, for example, Um I think he has a blind spot on Erdogan himself specifically. He believes in his power to deliver things, even though the analytical community is very worried about trajectory in Turkey. Many of the leaders um, in the Arab world perhaps see uh, an advantage to Trump staying in office. I think the interesting ex uh, case for us to look at in the, in the context of normalization in Israel and the Arab world is, of course, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia seems to be uh, weighing its options and waiting for the next administration to see if it's a Biden administration or Trump. Um, they, the Trump administration has been quite um, convenient for Saudi Arabia. On the other hand, if Joe Biden has been much more critical of um, the Saudi regime, and of course the Democrats and the progressive and the Democratic Party uh, have, uh, uh, after the Khashoggi uh, killing, have labeled uh, Saudi a pariah state. And so it is possible that in Saudi Arabia, 
uh, they would actually want to expedite the normalization in Israel under the, the Biden administration as a way uh, to mend fence with, with Congress and to pave its way into the mainstream um, American, you know, the public opinion. Definitely. And I think you're absolutely right, bringing up the transactional nature of these agreements that have taken place under the Trump administration between Israel and these Arab states, um, which is just, you know, these different styles in foreign policy making. Uh, turning the focus closer uh, to the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, we know that the Trump administration cut off all aid to the Palestinians and closed the PLO office in Washington. Uh, today, the Palestinian leadership has no formal contact with the United States. The West Bank is in economic peril, and Gaza is miring through twin humanitarian and COVID-19 crises. So how do you see the Trump administration addressing or not addressing Palestinian issues in a second term? And how might a Biden administration seek to reset American policy on this area? Or would they even seek to reset it? So this could be, under a second Trump administration, this can go both ways. Um, I think that, and what my understanding is that a lot of the administration's policies on Israel are actually guided by uh, Trump's um, U.S. ambassador in Israel, David Friedman. Uh, for instance, the most recent uh, removal of the geographic geographical restrictions on the um, bilateral scientific foundation, uh, bilateral scientific cooperation between Israel and the United States that now uh, uh, does not restrict this cooperation to entities uh, that extend beyond the green line. Um, this has been a, a Friedman move. Assuming he stays um, as U.S. ambassador to Israel, and I don't see a reason why he would not stay, um, we're likely to see more of this push. And perhaps my colleague Michael Koplow at IPFs um, is 100% confident that uh, there will be green light for Israeli annexation toward uh, the end of the administration. And I don't disagree with him. The question is what's happening in the first four years before we get to the twilight of the administration. I, a lot of it also would depend on what the Palestinians themselves do, and the Palestinians themselves are waiting for the outcome of the elections to see how um, they can resume some possible coordination with Israel. Um, they may need to uh, compromise their position toward the U.S., uh, even if it's a second Trump administration, even though they're not, uh, they don't have a very good contingency plan for this. Uh, but but it's possible. Uh, another question can also, and here we circle back to the normalization issue, if, for instance, Saudi Arabia and perhaps more Arab states coming to the fold, but unlike the UAE and Bahrain and Sudan, they actually make explicit uh, linkage to the Palestinian issue. And with the normalization uh, with Israel, they link in uh, a concession on the Palestinian front. I think this could be a good um, face-saving way to bring in the Palestinians back uh, from the cold. I don't anticipate the Trump administration changing its policies remarkably, but, you know, it's all transactional, right? It's all about the deal. He really wants to bring a deal. So uh, we might see um, some some changes, although the, the the overall trajectory is 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 probably going to continue some policy of being 100% aligned with Israel and maybe even more uh, more Israeli than Israel in some of the decisions. Um, 
because, for example, on this uh, bilateral scientific foundation, I can tell you as someone who is now sitting in Israel, uh, this is a risky move. Uh, if Congress opposes these deals, and if after the elections we will see Democrats in Congress uh, oppose these deals, they can put the whole program, and those are very important programs for scientific uh, cooperation, in jeopardy. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that in the greater scheme of things, the greater interest really is, is this, this, this does Israel any favors. Um, under a Biden administration, and I think this is what the Palestinians are waiting for, they will uh, surely seek to um, renew their contact with the new administration. I think the Biden administration um, will do the same. Um, one of the objectives of Biden's advisors will probably be to regain the trust of the Palestinian people, which under the last four years has been uh, lost completely. Uh, so we're probably going to see a restoration of the PLO uh, mission in Washington, a resumption of um, aid to the Palestinians. I don't know if UNRWA, the refugee agency, which is more political, but USAID projects and support for that can help um, uh, mitigate some of the the, the uh, unfortunate um, uh, trends that we're seeing on the ground, as you mentioned, in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, it's by the way, it's also possible that in an all functional in functional ways and not in legislation uh, in the agreement itself. Um, a Biden administration will also reverse a decision such as that was uh, this past Wednesday on the on the scientific collaboration that in practice no program in settlements would be approved um, so I think we will see we will see some of that um, and a Biden administration at least in terms of what we read by the advisors and what's in the democratic platform still supports the more traditional two-state solution uh, diplomacy, working with European allies. Uh, so we will go back to a more traditional uh, U.S. position that was a bipartisan position until the until this administration. And this is something the Palestinians, uh, I, I believe, um, are anticipating eagerly. In the prime minister's office and other offices in Jerusalem, um, I think they're, they'd rather, <laughs> dig, you know, um, dig their, uh, how do you say it? Oh, put their heads in the sand. Put their heads. They in the put sand. their heads in the sand, and uh, I'm not sure they're anticipating uh, the the possible change. Kind of on that topic, though, when President Trump announced the beginning of a normalization process between Israel and Sudan, there was this uh, televised press conference last week where he has Prime Minister Netanyahu on the phone, and he tries to get. Netanyahu to make a jab at Joe Biden. I think he says, you know, do you think Sleepy Joe, Sleepy Joe could get a deal like this? And uh, Netanyahu seemed really reluctant to engage with what the president is trying to bait out of him. He, I think his response was something like, well, you know, we're grateful to anyone in America who will make peace between Israel and its neighbors. On that note, how is Netanyahu preparing for a possible new U.S. president. We know that the relationship between Trump and Netanyahu has been very good and politically rewarding for both parties. Um, I hear what you're saying also about officials sticking their heads in the sand uh, in Jerusalem and not uh, and trying to uh, pretend that it's not possible that Trump could lose. Uh, but I'm sure that there's some calculations going on. And conversely, what do you think is on Netanyahu's wish list if Trump does win a second turn, because then you know, all bets are off in terms of 
what he can uh, get without any kind of uh, transaction. Yeah, so it's an important point. I think um, Prime Minister Netanyahu dodged the remark uh, quite uh, um, successfully. It was the right response uh, to say that he would appreciate uh, anything coming out of Israel. By the way, in Hebrew, um, he said, when asked about this remark, he said, well, it's true, we appreciate every all the assistance we get from our friends in America, but the fact is a fact, and uh, we have, haven't had any peace deals in years, and under this administration, just in the past few months, uh, we've had three. So facts are facts. Uh, Niosi Cohen, he's... Uh, his confidant and head of the Mossad was also speaking about it in a rare interview uh, just a couple of weeks ago, how uh, thankful he is for this administration. And he uh, mentioned specifically names um, for uh, bringing peace to Israel. So, you know, there is uh, something about this. But but um, I do not know what back channels exist and what you know, the Israeli government might try to do behind the scenes to uh, try to gauge the Biden administration's policies and uh, uh, create those ties uh, in advance in case, um, in, in, in according to all polls, the likely case that Biden becomes president. Um, the Biden team themselves, they said that they would not, uh, they, they would not be in touch directly with any officials from any other countries during the campaign. So there's also limitations from the other side. However, my understanding that in terms of contingency plans from the Israeli perspective, uh, that there's not a lot going on. Um, I was actually really surprised, but I assume they read the polls also, um, that there's no significant preparation uh, for a change in policy. Uh, the approach is, and Yossi Cohen, the head of Mossad, in the interview, when asked about it, he said, well, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We will wait and see. And if needed, we will adjust the policy for now. This is the administration we are working with. And this is an illustrative, I think, of the approach. The assumption is that uh, business as usual, what we've gotten used to, no daylight. Uh, it's not even no daylight, it's complete overlap. Uh, of uh, views on regional issues, and we will continue from there. Um, so it would be in- interesting to see how fast Israel uh, might adjust, and Israel will adjust, but how might fast and how quickly and how well Israel adjusts to new policies uh, should there be a change in administration in Washington. Um, in terms of the wish list, you know, it's, 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 it's complicated because... Uh, in terms of Netanyahu's uh, legal and political battles at home now, he's lost a lot, two-thirds of his uh, public support um, before uh, what the public sees as a failure to handle the COVID-19 crisis and the economic, uh, you know, the economic crisis that comes with it. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with home, and obviously his trial is supposed to begin. Um, this, a lot of it has to become at home. In, uh, excuse me. Um, a lot of it has to do with his own personal political and and, and personal survival. Um, on the regional front, with all due respect to the Palestinian issue, I the biggest thing is Iran. And in terms of Netanyahu's view on Iran, he supports a maximum pressure strategy, choking the Iranian regime uh, with the hope um, that 
the United States would uh, assist possibly with a military action against Iran uh, one day. This is something that I think um, he's not seeing under a possible Biden administration. By the way, I don't think it's realistic to think that Trump that said that he wants to stop all wars in the Middle East would engage in uh, actual strike on Iranian soil. Um, however, I think this is would be on Netanyahu's wish list. Um, he, if you, you you made a reference to uh, him um, uh, in a, in a press release with with Trump uh, dodging a comment. If you remember when uh, uh, Trump announced the normalization with uh, the UE, he was asked about Iran, and he said, "Sure, we would love to have a deal with Iran." And then Netanyahu lowered his head, didn't say a thing. So uh, Netanyahu on his wish list is not to have a deal with Iran. Sure, and even if it were, it seems a little outside the realm of possibility. Though you never want to write anything off. This one, this one seems fairly safe. We're talking all about how uh, the Israeli government might be preparing for a different American president or a an incumbent administration heading into its second term. So uh, maybe some different outlook in terms of how it can strategize and prioritize and leverage its extended time in office. But there's a flip side to this, which is the possibility, which you've alluded to speaking about Netanyahu's political crises at home, his trial, the high rate of public disapproval. There could be a different Israeli prime minister sometime soon. There's no election set yet, but uh, this is something that is certainly on the horizon sometime in the next 12 months. So how do you think any of the possible contenders, whether Naftali Bennett on the far right or Yair Lapid more on the center, center right, would navigate relations with the United States under Trump or under Biden? Um, you know, there's different combinations, Bennett, Biden, Bennett, Trump, Lapid, Trump, Lapid, Biden. You know, there's... It's really hard for me to imagine a different leadership in Israel, just because we haven't had one in so many years, and there are no term limits. Um, and it's too early to say if Netanyahu has uh, finished his political career. Well, uh, many analysts uh, and commentators have said that multiple times in the last few years, and they were wrong every time. So I think we should be uh, careful in terms of anticipating a change in Israel. However, with either administration, I think no matter uh, if there is a change in leadership in Israel, they would be able to navigate um, the, uh, navigate the issues with the United States uh, very well. Um, we need to remember the alternative to Trump, who, uh, if you believe in that, and I don't subscribe to this view, but if you believe in this, that this, he was the best administration for Israel, that would be easy. But also on the other side, you have Joe Biden, someone who said that if Israel uh, hadn't existed, the United States should have invented Israel. <laughs> he has proven his support for Israel over decades and decades. His uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, is also a big supporter of Israel. They have opposed to conditionality. They have, are committed to Israel's uh, qualitative military edge. I really don't see any reason uh, for um, issues with this administration on the fundamental issues that Israel should be concerned with. Um, Netanyahu is really 
uh, sees himself as the expert in American politics and he has his usual playbook, right? Like if we don't get along with the administration, I'll go to Congress and, 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 and go through uh, the different actors and, 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 and APAC and other organizations. And maybe other Israelis are less savvy in those uh, tactics. But fundamentally, I think the, uh, the management of relations should not, should not get hurt. Um, it would be wise if Netanyahu himself, but I'm not banking on it, but if, if, if the Israeli government would try to restore the bipartisan support for Israel, uh, which has eroded so deeply since uh, Netanyahu came into power. It's an interesting point you bring up about Netanyahu's feeling about his ability to deftly play American politics. And of course, we know Netanyahu spent part of his upbringing in the United States, knows the U.S. well, uh, started his career in the Israeli mission to the United Nations in New York and speaks English uh, with something verging on an American English accent. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how someone who doesn't have that experience plays it, although then you have Naftali Bennett, whose parents are immigrants from San Francisco. So, uh, you know, he has maybe not the same exposure that Netanyahu did, but perhaps some some kind of similar acuity, although he's more ideological than Netanyahu. So it, it'll be interesting to see, but I also agree it's, it's too early to say for certain that either Bennett or Lapid or anyone else has a realistic chance to, to, uh, to replace Netanyahu yet. But, you know, this possibility of elections, it is on the horizon in Israel. I also, you know, Evan, I, it's really interesting you say this. I know that Netanyahu is a almost perfect American accent and, and, and his command of Americanism, if you, if you will, uh, is appealing to some, but I think, uh, going back, if you look at previous Israeli prime ministers, you know, we're commemorating the, the assassination, of, the murder of Yitzhak Rabin, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin this week. Uh, he was really beloved in Washington. He, had, he, had his, he was very quirky and had this very thick Israeli accent. I think Ariel Sharon, not in his uh, involvement in, you know, Lebanon, um, in the early 80s, but when he became prime minister, he was also really liked. I think there could be also an appeal in Washington for someone who is more Israeli than American. Um, so this is also something, I mean, that, that we, we tend to uh, forget that Israeli leaders that were less slick were also accepted with open arms uh, in the past yeah, absolutely. And I have to be upfront and say my perception on this may be slightly skewed by the fact that Netanyahu has been prime minister for most of my uh, politically life. aware life. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> that is something to consider. But I, I do think, though, even for people who have a little bit of a broader uh, perspective on this that, that reaches back to previous uh previous prime ministers, I think that Netanyahu's specific style, not just the superficial things like the accent or the fact that he, uh, you know, knows the U.S. well, just, you know, his uh, his way of presenting and, and his charisma, I think, has become for a certain subset of pro-Israel organizations in the United States and pro-Israel people in the United States has become the standard 
has become the standard that you have to meet. And maybe, as, as you've said, that's not necessary in order to cultivate um, a strong relationship with the American people. Um, I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but um, if anything, I think Netanyahu's opponents feel like it's necessary. Everyone wants to out Netanyahu, Netanyahu. So, Right. That's an interesting one. Before we close out and move on to our next segment in this podcast, um, I want to look at the Israeli public uh, for a second. The presidential race here in the United States, at least as of this recording, uh, you know, we have a couple days to go. Things could change. Things are up in the air. Biden is pulling a lead in the polls right now, but there are other factors at play. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone wants to be super confident in making a prediction about what will happen on Tuesday. But I think we can say with some degree of certainty that if the same Trump versus Biden contest were to be held in Israel, Trump would win in a landslide. Uh, recent polling shows that Israelis prefer Trump to Biden by uh, a roughly two to one margin, uh, maybe even greater and certainly greater among Israeli Jews. What do you think accounts for this? So it's, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting because Israel is one of the very few countries in the world where really Trump is more popular than Biden. But I don't think um, we should interpret it as to say that if both were running in Israel, uh, Trump would win in the landslide. And I'll explain why. Um, Israelis, like uh, people all around the world, are now only concerned with the health crisis and the economic crisis. And if the performance of their leader was as the performance of uh, Trump in addressing those crises or lack of addressing those crises, um, he wouldn't be popular here. So when Israel, if, if you know, when you vote Israelis and Americans and other people, you vote mostly on domestic issues. The support that Trump receives in the Israeli public, and I have the most recent poll, I think was from last week, there was 63% of Israelis uh, versus 18% of percent, so 63% percent of Israelis said that Trump would be a better president for Israel. And 18% percent said that, uh, so the numbers are even greater than the, uh, only 18% prefer Joe Biden. Uh, but the prism, the lens through which they look at it and why they like Trump is that they believe he's better for Israel. Um, and this is something uh, that needs to be remembered. Now, from their perspective, they see the Jerusalem embassy, the Golan Heights, uh, not arguing with Netanyahu, having very strong personal ties between Trump and Netanyahu, which uh, in this poll also that I'm citing, I explained that the, 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 the personal relationships between the prime minister and the president uh, would uh, help ensure that the U.S. supports Israel. So they also see it as a, as a way of the administration, but also the personal relationships. So it's it's important to remember the context um, also that Trump came into office after eight years of Obama and for reasons that were played by Netanyahu and his governments um, and just public perception. Yeah. Obama was deemed in Israel as anti-Israel as not uh, having fully Israel's back in his mind, uh, even though we know this is completely incorrect. Okay. And then Trump came into office and adopted all of Israel's positions and more some. Um, recognized uh, Israel's uh, sovereignty over the Golan Heights, moved the embassy to Jerusalem, 
um, recognized Jerusalem as part of Israel. There's a whole uh, State Department issue around that. Said that settlements are not an obstacle to peace. Um, canceled all aid to the Palestinians. Um, this is what the Israelis are saying, and they believe that if Trump continues to a second term, he will continue showering Israel with gifts. And with Biden, there's just no certainty how he will behave, uh, despite his record. This is the lens through which Israelis see Trump. They don't look at how he manages American affairs. I didn't think of it that way, but you raise a lot of good points there uh, that, you know, for Israelis... Trump is a good president for the United States vis-a-vis Israel. Uh, but again, as you've said, people vote on domestic issues. It would be an interesting social experiment to see different countries' leaders run as candidates in other countries. But uh, that is a whole other rabbit hole to jump through. And uh, we have two more great segments coming up in this podcast. So Shira, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you ever very much for having me. For the next part of this program, we turn to my colleague Eli Koaz, who spoke to Israel Policy Forum's policy director, Michael Koplow, based in Washington, D.C., about the ramifications of this election for American policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the partisan fault lines dividing Democrats and Republicans' respective approaches to this issue, and what might happen based on the outcome of next Tuesday's election. Okay, so I'm happy to be joined with our policy director, Michael Koplow, based in D.C. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, as always, for having me, Eli. Now, uh, unfortunately, the baseball season is over. Yes. Um, but now we have the election season to look forward to. We're, we're in the midst of it, and we're in the final stretch. Exciting World Series, and we have an exciting election um, coming up next Tuesday. So we're going to talk a bit about what the results of the election could mean um, for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Obviously, a lot to talk about when it comes to that, especially we had uh, just last week another normalization agreement or announcement. This time the country was Sudan, so Israel and Sudan are normalizing their relationship. Um, and that's the third uh, country that uh, Trump can add to the list. So let's get into it. Let's talk about a scenario where uh, the Democratic nominee Joe Biden is elected. What aspects of President Trump's Israeli-Palestinian policy do you expect him to diverge from first? And are there any elements of the Trump administration's approach that you think Biden would keep? Talking about the normalization, probably... Uh, like the elephant in the room in terms of something that seems like it's been uh, successful. Um, what are your thoughts? I think the two areas where a Biden administration would most obviously diverge from the Trump administration are its treatment of the Palestinians and related to that, its treatment of Israeli West Bank annexation. So to start with the Palestinians, one of the hallmarks of Trump administration policy toward the Israeli-Palestinian arena has been a series of really severe policy shifts toward the Palestinians. And this includes everything from uh, 
suspending all U.S. aid, and that's not just economic aid, it's humanitarian aid as well, to the West Bank and Gaza. It is merging the U.S. consulate general into the U.S. embassy. It is closing the PLO mission in Washington. It is uh, defunding UNRWA in, in, its, in its entirety. Uh, so you have a, a series of policy moves toward the Palestinians that were designed, depending on uh, depending on who you talk to and um, and sort of what you think the motivations are, were designed either to get the Palestinians to the table or designed to uh, punish the Palestinians for their unwillingness unwillingness to go along with some Trump administration priorities. But however you look at it, um, no question that a thrust of Trump administration policy has been to essentially remove any type of benefit that the U.S. was providing to the Palestinians. And um, as a result, not only from U.S. moves, but also from Palestinian decisions to then boycott the Trump administration, there's really been no engagement uh, between the U.S. and the Palestinians for, at this point, um, close to three years. And so I think that a Biden administration, first and foremost, would be likely to try and restart a U.S. relationship with the Palestinians, uh, would try to restore, if not all, certainly a good portion of the funding that Congress has actually already appropriated for the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, and I certainly think there will be an effort to reopen the consulate general and, and perhaps to reopen the PLO mission in Washington. On the annexation front... Before you go to annexation, now I just wanted to touch on this a bit more. We're talking about the Palestinians when it comes to USAID and, and that sort of thing, but we're also talking about, in particular, the Palestinian Authority. The Trump administration has really uh, weakened the Palestinian Authority throughout by these... So, I mean, in particular, the focus is also going to be on trying to strengthen and stabilize the Palestinian Authority in order to kind of push the Palestinians to be able to come to uh, negotiations uh, in the future. I think so. But I also think that it's important to remember that the Palestinian Authority at the end of the Obama administration was not doing great then either. It was no. it was already pretty weak. And also important to remember that under the Obama administration, starting in 2014, the United States ended all of its direct budget support to the Palestinian Authority over concerns about corruption and also over concerns uh, about prisoner payments. So much of what the Trump administration has then piled on top of that, yes, undoubtedly it has weakened, it has weakened the PA further, but the upshot of it has really been that it has, uh, it has also damaged ordinary Palestinian quality of life in the West Bank and Gaza, which is what happens when uh, the U.S. no longer funds infrastructure projects or water projects or uh, provides food aid or humanitarian aid. So, um, you know, it's not just about the PA. I think that it's also a lot about uh, restoring some sort of basic relationship with ordinary Palestinians as well. For sure. And so the other big thing is obviously annexation, which the Trump administration has pretty much been in support of to to a uh, to a certain degree. It still kind of remains like unclear what type of annexation, but we can probably expect that if Biden win, 
there would be almost a complete reversal in terms of giving a green light to Israeli unilateral uh, annexation. Right. Biden has been very clear uh, over the past few months that he is absolutely opposed to annexation. He, he has not been ambiguous about this at all. The Trump administration's ambiguity has come really just uh, not so much about whether it supports annexation, but in what context it will support it and whether it's something that should happen immediately or whether it's something that should happen at the end of a process of trying to get the Palestinians to first sign on to the Trump plan. But there seems to be little question that within the Trump administration, there is support for annexation as a concept. And in the past few weeks, we've actually seen Ambassador David Friedman be even more explicit in his public comments that uh, extension of Israeli sovereignty to parts of the West Bank is something that the U.S. conceptually supports and is something that, you know, that he uh, he hints that the U.S. will actually support in practice before too long. And he's also taken great pains to portray the deal in the Abraham Accords where uh, the UAE agreed to normalize relations with Israel in return for annexation being uh, suspended for the time being, he has taken great pains to point out that uh, that was a temporary a temporary halt, not an absolute suspension, and that it is something that it is U.S. policy to see uh, actually be implemented at some point down the road. So on the annexation issue in particular, I think that there is a, a very clear gap between what a Biden administration is likely to do and what a Trump administration uh, has supported and is likely to support if there is a second Trump term. And that's why you have many right-wing Israelis and settler uh, leaders praying for a, a Trump victory. You can see that all over uh, social media. But let's kind of focus in for a minute on uh, the normalization that's happened uh, in the Gulf and also now with Sudan, other countries being mentioned, potentially Morocco. How do you think Biden will approach this idea of, you kind of touched on it earlier, of maybe using these normalizations to put pressure on the Palestinians or to kind of bring Israel and the Palestinians closer in a way? Do you think he'll use that uh, approach that the Trump administration has taken? And in particular, how will he address like some of the more controversial issues that have come up, like in the Abraham Accords with the UAE, uh, the sale of F-35s? Do you think that would stay in place? What's your take here? Biden on the Abraham Accords has been clear that he thinks they are a good development and he supports them. And there was an interview with his top foreign policy advisor, Tony Blinken, in Jewish Insider uh, just today where he, he made a similar, a similar point about the Abraham Accords being a good development. But that said, I don't think a Biden administration is likely to pursue these types of agreements in the same way for a couple of reasons. One is that I think a Biden administration uh, would probably like to see these agreements happen, but them also happen concurrently with some sort of progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front. But secondly, and I think this is actually the, the more important and, and more salient point, these agreements have, have come with a cost. And that cost is, so far, large arms sales to other Middle Eastern states that are not Israel. And 
as as you know, there was reticence inside of Israel when the Abraham Accords were first announced over the F-35 component of it, uh, where F-35s were going to be sold to the Emiratis. And uh, there now seems to be an agreement between the U.S. and Israel over what Israel will get in return as a way of maintaining its qualitative military edge in the region. But the more that these agreements happen, the more they're going to involve arms sales, because that's the precedent that the Trump administration has now set. And um, I don't know that a Biden administration is is going to be thrilled with the idea of selling advanced weaponry, not only to the UAE, but potentially to the Saudis and the Qataris and the Egyptians and other parties that are requesting these types of weapons. You know, there's there's a reason uh, there's a reason that the U.S. has been reticent to sell these types of weapons uh, to to countries uh, before. Um, and until now, Israel was the only country in the region that was going to get F-35s. So the Trump administration, President Trump himself, you know, really from the beginning, has talked about wanting to uh, wanting to boost the U.S. economy through arms sales to the Middle East. I don't think that a President Biden is going to have the same emphasis. And then the question is, to what extent these normalization agreements can happen without the U.S. component of providing large arms packages that may not necessarily be either in American interests or in Israeli interests uh, to see these types of things spread around the region. So uh, we'll have to see. I think that um, President Biden will, will definitely see the Abraham Accords and, and these types of uh, these types of um, openings between Israel and other countries as a positive. It's just a question of what is required to actually conclude more of them. Yeah, I definitely don't think Biden's interested in a Middle East arms race sponsored by the United States the same way right. that Trump was open to. But let's talk about I'm not going to get into a lot of election speculation here, but let's talk about the less likely scenario of a Trump uh, re-election. Should Trump be reelected, what can we expect uh, in terms of Israel policy? I mean, annexation is the obvious thing that, that, that comes to mind as becoming at the forefront of the agenda. Um, do you think there will be any big differences from the first term? We could talk about the future of the, the, the Trump uh, peace to prosperity uh, plan. And in case of a Trump re-election, what would be the reaction of, of, of Democrats? Let's just take a few minutes to, for you to unpack that scenario, and then we'll, we'll try to r- wrap up with some final thoughts. So as we talked about, I think the big thing that we're likely to see from a second Trump term, and by the way, I, I don't concede that a second Trump term is uh, is the less likely scenario. Frankly, I have no idea at this point. Um, I'm just, I just know, that, I mean, our listeners on the podcast know how much I love the polls. And, and I know the polls, they deceived us a bit four years ago, but um, I'm just I'm just taking the polls and presenting them course. as... Uh, <laughs> Yes, yes. I'll just I'll just throw in there that I'm not sure that um, looking at polls is actually uh, what we should be looking at, as opposed to looking at uh, the various ways in which votes yes. will will be will or will not be counted or even prevented from being cast. Yes. But that's a that's a different subject, perhaps for a different podcast. Um, mm-hmm. So as we as we touched on, I think the big difference in a second Trump term will be that annexation will be carried out in in some in some uh, shape or form. And um, we're already seeing a preview of uh, a preview of this 
the U.S. and Israel officially signed an agreement that allows uh, scientific, academic, and commercial cooperative projects between the two to be carried out in the West Bank and the Golan Heights, overturning the previous agreements on this, which were signed and negotiated during the Nixon administration and kept in place by every president since, which said that these types of projects uh, cannot be conducted in areas that uh, Israel took control of in the Six-Day War and uh, that they also couldn't um, deal with subjects that were uh, that were primarily focused on, uh, on on these areas, meaning the West Bank and Golan Heights. So, you know, this is already an important way in which we are seeing the U.S. collapse the categories of uh, Israel inside the Green Line, Israel beyond the Green Line, um, even collapsing the categories of uh, annexation versus application of sovereignty, which is the official status of the Golan Heights, versus um, disputed territory, which is uh, how Israel, uh, the Israeli government refers to the West Bank, um, versus you know something that's completely undisputed, which is Israel inside of the Green Line. So, uh, you know, we're we're seeing this happen even before a second Trump term, and I think that we will almost certainly see a U.S. a clear U.S. green light for some specific manner of annexation in in a second Trump term. And I also think that uh, there are a number of countries sitting on the sidelines that will potentially join the Abraham Accords almost right away if President Trump is reelected. I think that uh, they're taking a wait and see attitude. Um, you know, these are countries that have been mentioned uh, ad infinitum, uh, certainly in the Israeli press. Uh, I think people are looking at Oman, people are looking at Morocco. Uh, people are looking at Niger. There's a lot of speculation about Saudi Arabia. I think that one, for a variety of reasons, is is a bit more complicated. Um, but I think that if President Trump is reelected, we will definitely see a number of other countries sign on to the Abraham Accords. And um, this, of course, will put more pressure on the Palestinians, even even more pressure than they are under already. Uh, I don't um, I don't know how much it will move. Palestinian policy itself. I think that at some point the Palestinians are likely to uh, accept the Israeli tax revenues that they have turned down now for months in protest of annexation simply because their financial situation is, uh, you know, is really about as bad as it can get. Um, But I don't know that President Abbas has the nimbleness or flexibility if President Trump is reelected to just drop whatever objections he has had and uh, and engage with the United States right away. It r- remains to be seen, um, but I think that uh, I think that uh, if we do have a second Trump term, annexation is is absolutely going to be not only on the table, um, but but seen through in a real way. On the issue of of how Democrats in the U.S. may react to uh, to a Trump re-election within the Israeli-Palestinian sphere, I don't think that. Democrats are going to change their positions just by dint of the fact that President Trump may get a second term. I think that to the extent there will be a shift, it will be if President Trump greenlights annexation and Israel actually moves forward with it. Um, if that happens, you know, we have seen clear statements and warnings and congressional resolutions from almost all Democrats in Congress now for over a year warning about the consequences of annexation and how that will put pressure on the U.S.-Israel relationship. And uh, certainly, I think something like that will bring a renewed push 
to initiatives such as conditioning military assistance to Israel um, and perhaps things that go beyond that. Um, while there really uh, is no support in Congress outside of one or two members of Congress at most for BDS, um, I don't I don't assume that um, BDS will remain so fringe in the halls of Congress if Israel goes ahead with annexation at the Trump administration's urging. Um, so uh, I think that the democratic reaction really will depend on uh, on Israeli and, and, and Trump administration policy and, and what we what we see. But I don't think that there will be some sort of um, automatic punitive reaction toward Israel just because Trump is reelected. I agree. And I guess we'll have to wait and see uh, how everything would play out. But nothing gets me more excited than a Israel and Niger uh, potential normalization. So, yeah, I'd say I'd say Israel and Niger potential normalization is almost exciting, as exciting as uh, the Red Sox's financial flexibility now that they no longer have Mookie Betts. Oh, wow. Yeah. So both of those things are, are, are very exciting and, and, and really, you know. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I haven't been uh, as excited since uh, Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship, <laughs> but uh, but we'll, um, we'll have to see the future of the Israel-Niger relationship. Um, one last question, Kappa, before uh, we close up. Um, just to focus on the, the Trump Peace to Prosperity plan, which hasn't really uh, taken off yet, but it's kind of set a new, at least from uh, the Netanyahu government and even from what uh, the Israeli opposition uh, has said, is the new starting point for negotiations and something that's really a non-starter on the Palestinian side. How uh, would a Biden administration navigate that very like very complex issue of trying to get back to where the starting point was before uh, the Trump plan uh, was released. Is it something that you, you kind of build off of or try to erase? I think it's going to be difficult because there's no question that the Israeli government position, whether it's Prime Minister Netanyahu or Prime Minister Benny Gantz, or really any any other. Whoa, you did, you didn't say those words, did you, <laughs> Prime Minister Benny Gantz? Oh my well, god! Well, you know, let's 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 uh, let's let, let's delve into fantasy for a moment. The point, uh, being Prime that, Minister Avi Gabay. Yeah. The, <laughs> the point being that any conceivable Israeli prime minister is going to want to start with the Trump plan as as kind of the starting point from from Israel's perspective. Um, I don't think it's it's going to be something that uh, will work for a Biden administration. But I also don't think that a Biden administration is going to be looking to have final status negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. I think Anytime that soon, yeah. Biden administration is going to focus on um, much smaller initiatives in, in Israel and, and the Palestinian territories. And I think that certainly at the outset, President a President Biden is going to stay far away from trying to get the parties back to the table and have some sort of ultimate deal. And so, you know, that will be one way of kind of sidestepping the Trump plan. Um, but, you know, from this is something that Republicans are going to seize on after Trump and Democrats are going to repudiate um, also after Trump. And, you know, the I think it's going to be it's going to be hard to, to have a meeting of the minds um, while the Trump plan is still out there. And while uh, the Israeli government sort of still has a, a taste of, of, of what it could have possibly had, um, had it been seen through. Thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, always a pleasure. And uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens uh, next Tuesday. Yeah. With a lot of interesting 
takes and two uh, very different directions uh, the Israel-U.S. relationship could be headed. Finally, we turn to my colleague Shani Reichman, who spoke with David Halperin, Israel Policy Forum's executive director based in New York, about the impact of this election on the American Jewish communal discussion on Israel. The Trump administration's approach has excited strong passions, both pro and con, from American Jewry, and it's important to understand how different election results, a win for Trump or a win for Biden, could affect things. Hi, everyone. I'm Shani Reichman. I'm here with Israel Policy Forum's Executive Director, David Halperin. Hey, David. How's it going? It's going great, Shani. Glad to be here. So let's just jump right in. Specifically regarding the impact on Israel's policy, why do you think this election is so consequential for the American Jewish community? Look, I think this it's it's an election that's not just consequential for the American Jewish community. It's consequential for the entire country and American Jews are indeed Americans. Uh, so many things that the American Jewish community uh, cares deeply about, about um, it could dramatically be impacted uh, by this election, of course, on, on a wide array of domestic concerns. On the issue of Israel specifically, I mean, folks have been talking about this quite a bit, that Israel does not register as a top priority uh, for American Jews when it comes to uh, the elections and at the ballot box. It does uh, clearly more so for uh, more conservative American Jews who tend to be uh, more aligned with orthodox streams, more observant, if you will, orthodox streams uh, of, of Judaism. And so there is clearly uh, that fault line um, between different aspects uh, of the American Jewish community. Um, but this election is consequential because uh, we have two dramatically uh, different directions, two dramatically different candidates. Um, and aspects of the American Jewish community that are, are highly invested um, on, on, on the outcome. So I, I, this is, it, it's, I think, uh, unfair to say why it's consequential specifically for this one community. Um, it's, it's really consequential for the, for the entire country, and that's uh, you know, no less so for the, for the Jewish community. And uh, I think you've spoken a bit about this in the past, but... How do we expect fault lines dividing Democratic and Republican American Jews to take shape under a Biden administration? And what about a second Trump term? Is there any way that these rifts can be repaired or are we heading in different directions? Yeah. So like I said, there's there's clearly a, a divide between uh, a majority of American Jews who identify with more liberal streams of American Judaism or who identify as just Jewish or, or secular versus those who are more affiliated with Orthodox. Uh, this this denominational divide that I would refer to is increasingly uh, overlaps with the, the growing uh, political divide uh, under a Biden administration. Um, I think you will see um, the anticipation, at least, is that you would have an administration that looks a bit more like what uh, we would be used to in U.S.-Israel relationship. But I think we, we can't assume that this is just going to be going back to the relationship as normal. Um, what the significant steps the Trump administration has moved not just uh, on issues, uh, a range of issues in Israel's favor, but a range of issues in in the favor of Israel's most right-wing impulses um, uh, on a host of issues, uh, mean that even reverting back to some sense of normalcy by a Biden administration will be seen as as substantial shifts in U.S. policy. 
Um, and that is likely to be more controversial in a sense. Try, and attempts to revert back to what was normal will, will be viewed in, in the lens of, of actually going against uh, what, what certainly the right and, and um, many conservative voices will be viewed as, as the, the new pro-Israel baseline. Uh, that the Trump administration has said. Um, and I think that will be a challenge that will likely divide Democrats and Republicans on the age-old question of what does it mean to be pro-Israel and how um, uh, how does that that look going forward is, is likely to be an issue in, in, a, in a Biden administration. A second Trump term, um, you know, Michael Coplow wrote about this uh, in his uh, weekly Coplow column this week, which I would encourage everyone to take a look at. But I, I think what it essentially outlines is more of the same. Um, and of course, we have seen how those divisions in the community have played out as, as well during during Trump. Um, whether ir- th- these divisions are irreconcilable, I think, is really a question uh, not only in terms of what U.S. policy will be, but what Israeli policy will be and how Israeli leaders will respond uh, under either Trump or Biden. Whether uh, Israel is increasing as it has been over time in the last, certainly in the last four years, predating the last four years, um, the more that uh, I think Israel is identified as an issue of primary concern to only one political party um, or one that is clearly uh, aligned with one political party, I think that will continue to damage what has been the historic bipartisan consensus that has been at the root of the strength of the U.S.-Israel alliance. Um, So whether they're irreconcilable, I think a lot will be on what take shape in terms of the future of Israeli politics and how do they respond to a second term Trump or, or, or a first term uh, President Biden. Some of those Trump administration policies that you uh, mentioned earlier, like his peace to prosperity plan, which endorsed annexation, as well as relocating the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, were not universally praised by American Jewry, despite being warmly welcomed in Israel. Should President Trump win a second term, do you think his approach to Israel will become more mainstream in the U.S. Jewish community? I mean, in a word, no. Um, I think that uh, if President Trump wins a second term, um, I think that there is we're going to see more of the same, and more of the same means more uncomfortable conversations about the nature of the U.S. as a relationship, and unfortunately, um, likely more distancing uh, between Israel and many diaspora Jews who are having a hard time identifying themselves. Um, with Israel, an Israel that is struggling to maintain the duality of its Jewish and democratic character. Now, I shouldn't say this is only on the potential of a second Trump administration. These are issues that speak to the heart of the trajectory of where Israelis and American Jews are right now. If you see the recent polling showing that, you know, upwards of 65, 70 percent of American Jews um, are, are polling were projected to vote for Biden and the exact mirror opposite of Israelis. Uh, would would pick Trump. Um, this is uh, so. I think in in a second uh, Trump term, you, you are likely to see uh, what we have always seen, which is that more uh, liberal uh, American Jews are not prioritizing the issue of Israel and their issues. Uh, uh, when they do think of Israel, they think of it in terms of the Jewish and democratic nature, and are deeply are increasingly uncomfortable with the nature and direction of the Israeli Palestinian conflict. If we take the assumption that we'll see more of the same and greater steps towards annexation and the like, um, I don't think that will um, suddenly become the the main overwhelming view. It's it's likely only to fuel those growing tensions that already exist. 
Looking to the Republican Jewish community, which of course is smaller than the Democratic Jewish community, but still very much relevant, uh, what do you think their top concerns are about a Biden administration vis-a-vis Israel policy? Yeah, I mean, I think on the on the the Republican side, I mean, w- yeah, polls have shown and research has shown, of course, that the 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 Republican Jewish community is more likely to to vote on issues of Israel as, as single issue concerns than those um, Democrats or, or, or more liberal Jews. Um, I think when it comes to their concerns about a second Biden administration, you can see what you've heard even in the context of this campaign, a concern that more liberal elements, uh, progressive elements of the Democratic Party who are more likely to be critical or want to um, condition assistance to Israel and the like will have greater influence on Biden. I think there's going to be concern about from Republican Jews about uh, Biden re-entering the Iran deal that many Republican Jews were uh, vehemently opposed to. Um, and I, I think that we can anticipate that. Uh, I think there's also going to be a question about, from the Republican perspective, um, what can be seen has been a number of Trump's successes in terms of these Gulf normalization deals and um, questioning whether Biden, a Biden administration would continue um, what has been viewed as a, as a, as a real foreign policy success for the, for the Trump administration. Um, and so I think really they're going to be concerned across the board, uh, for, for Biden. I mean, this is, this is, uh, um, you know, this is why that Biden is not their, their candidate. In your view, will Biden continue some of those foreign policy successes vis-a-vis the Gulf states, et cetera? Um, and, and are some of their concerns reasonable? Yeah, I, I think that we're likely to see the the progress of, of Gulf states normalizing with Israel will, I think, continue regardless of whether it's. Uh, Biden and Trump administration it may very well be uh, accelerated uh, under a Trump administration. Um, I think that the nature of the normalization being contingent on these military arms sales, F-35s and the like, um, have suggested that the Trump administration has been more forthcoming in terms of selling uh, and offering these sorts of military equipment than has been previously attempted. So one would assume that uh, if that is indeed the case, that Trump may accelerate those th- those those matters where whereas the Biden administration may pause in uh, in what it's um, offering uh, some of these states in exchange for for normalization. Um, I think uh, uh, our friend uh, Dan Shapiro was quoted uh, in one publication. I think it was The Economist saying how the Obama administration was not even uh, willing to give the Emiratis a briefing on the F-35 capabilities, let alone sell them the airplanes or 50 airplanes, as now has been reported that the Trump administration is asking Congress to approve. Um, and so I think that 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 issue will will weigh heavy in terms of the the pace of the Gulf normalization um, uh, arrangements. But I, I certainly think this is the new reality and that should it be Biden, you're, you're likely to see a, a desire to continue to deepen the normalization between Israel and a number of Gulf states in a way that will, um, you know, constructively uh, impact the Israeli-Palestinian arena. Um, whereas I think uh, I, I think we can anticipate a Biden administration attempting to find ways to utilize these deals to be more constructive on the Israeli-Palestinian arena. Whereas I think the Trump administration uh, will not prioritize that aspect of, of the normalization uh, deals. Looking to a future potential Biden administration. Um, President Obama, despite being generally popular with American Jewry overall, was still deeply controversial in some quarters of the American Jewish right, where he faced widespread disapproval for his handling of, of his relationship with Netanyahu, for his ham- handling of, of certain Israel issues in the UN, etc. 
So given Vice President Biden's service in the Obama administration, do you expect him to encounter similar challenges? No, I mean, you have to remember that Biden, before he was the vice president to Obama, he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, as we've heard a lot in this campaign from um, the Trump campaign about his uh, 47 years uh, uh, in Washington. He has been known as a, a, a really pro-Israel uh, leader in Congress, um, um, you know, particularly when he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I think he's someone that, um, you know, it, it's really hard to paint uh Biden as someone who has been antagonistic uh, against Israel. There's the one notable uh, development that happened during the Obama administration, very high profile visit by Vice President Biden, um, which uh, coincided with the announcement of building in uh, East Jerusalem neighborhoods, which which I think took Biden by surprise at that moment and created a, a high profile incident when he was a vice president, um, uh, where he was where he was um, essentially um you know, uh, take, taken off guard by the, this announcement of settlement a- activity. I think that um, it will be uh, clear that it should Biden emerge victorious, um, that the Israeli-Palestinian issue and issues impacting Israel uh, certainly are not, initially are not going to be the priority. And that's the same as for Trump. I mean, I, I, uh, whereas I think you'll see the Gulf normalization deals continue to advance, um, Clearly, uh, whoever's occupying the White House in January is going to be faced with uh, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, with uh, domestic issues um, in the United States requiring um, uh, the attention, and um, that clearly will be the priority and not the Israel file. And it will be interesting to see, should it be Biden, how they begin uh, to address relations with Israel or the Israeli-Palestinian arena um, or other foreign policy matters, for that matter, amidst uh, what are clearly going to be the pressing concerns of the economy on the coronavirus issue. Israel Policy Forum has previously examined the generational and religious splits within the American Jewish community through our Across the Divide program series, which um, I also know is an issue that you care deeply about. In what ways do you think those divisions manifest in the political split we're seeing regarding the U.S. approach to Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? So, yeah, we touched on this a little bit earlier where we talked about the denominational and political divides essentially being overlapping or increasingly overlapping. Um, And then, of course, the generational divide, uh, there's been a stark one, and that's been the topic of much conversation in the American Jewish community, particularly as it relates to the issue of Israel for quite some time now, for for many years. Um, You know, I think, look, this is uh, an election season. This is politics. This is when divisions are at their utmost. Um, and right now we are seeing those divisions, uh, in, in, <laughs> as, as fits in election season, um, it will be a challenge, um, because of the divided nature of our country for the broader American Jewish community to come together around issues regarding Israel around any issues, frankly, um, because these d- divisions within the community are so significant and they mirror the divisions that are happening uh, at the political level across the entire country. And so the challenges that are facing the you know, ability for civil discourse across political, denominational, generational lines within the American Jewish community are the same problems that are happening at the larger level. Um, and it, it is going to be a uh, you know, paramount for whoever occupies the White House. It, it would be my hope, at least, that there's an there's an effort to um, return to some basic level of decency in our discourse. But um, 
that's that's tough to do in this polarizing and politi- politicized times. Um, I, I actually think it will be a, a, a challenge we're, we're all going to have to face regardless of who's, who's in the White House in 2021. Thanks so much, David, for your time and for your analysis. I guess we'll have to follow up in a couple days. To see you on the other side. So that is going to bring this episode of Israel Policy Pod to a close. Hopefully by the time you tune in to our next episode, we'll know who the President of the United States is going to be come January 20th, 2021. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time.